It is an incredible privilege for us to be able to meet in this way. And before I even start today's message, as we're live now from the sanctuary, I just want to give an incredible amount of gratitude and a shout out to our creative and communications team, our media team. Don't take for granted the opportunity that we have to be able to do this together, even though um, these are less than ideal circumstances. And, And let's be realistic in a moment like this. There has never before been a stoppage of activity like what's happened in modern America and around the world right now. I mean, when you think of all of the activities that have come to a screeching halt, this is absolutely unprecedented. Graduations that have been canceled and weddings that have been postponed. Almost all sports activity has been completely stopped. And little things that we used to take for granted. Things like hugging a friend or being able to, um, you know, go out to eat for dinner or Or maybe even able to drop your kids off for school. Can we have an amen for looking forward to the day of being able to drop your kids off at school again? And so we recognize that with all of this stoppage of activity, the the one word of the one emotion that I am feeling myself as well as feeling from, from you, our people, and the people that I talk to and pray for, if I had to boil it all down to one word, it's the word disappointment. And some of those disappointments are huge. I mean, it's the loss of life. It's the loss of loved ones. It's the loss of jobs. It's the inability to visit a relative in a care facility right now. And then some of those disappointments are small. And yet the cumulative effect of all of those disappointments feels like an incredible weight that falls upon us each and every day. And a lot of us have different ways of trying to deal with each and every one of those disappointments. Some of us deal with those disappointments by coping in a variety of ways. There was this one family in Salt Lake City, Utah, that was dealing with their disappointment, which happened to be not being able to go on a vacation to Disneyland. And they had a young boy by the name of James who was five years old, and this boy could not understand why for the life of him that they couldn't go on the vacation that had been promised and that they were so looking forward to. And the dad kept trying to explain to the boy, he kept saying, you know, one day we're going to get to Disneyland. Don't worry, one day we'll get to go. And yet that promise, that assurance seemed to kind of fall on deaf ears for little James. And so what the dad decided to do with the help of YouTube with a little bit of Disney magic and a little bit of dad ingenuity, this father decided to bring a little bit of Disneyland to James. I want you to see what happened in their living room. What are you gonna do for the picture? What are you gonna do for the picture? What are you gonna do? That boy couldn't get to Disneyland, so that dad brought a little bit of Disneyland to that boy. 
One of the things that we believe at Easter is that we believe that God cares for us even in the midst of our disappointments, whether they're really big ones or also the little ones of life. We also believe that God is with us even when we can't understand why this is going on. And in addition to that, we believe that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You know, when I reflect back on all of the Easter sermons that I've heard, as well as all the Easter sermons that I have preached, you can categorize almost all of those sermons in the bucket of one-day sermons. One day you're going to need this information. One day you're going to die. One day there's going to be life after death, life beyond death, and you're going to want to figure out your exit strategy. I wonder if there's a little child in all of us that needs a different kind of reassurance right now, something that's a little more timely, something that's a little more urgent. And I'm wondering if you need to know what difference does the resurrection make right now? What difference does Easter make in this moment? And that's what I want to talk about with you today. Let's move Easter into the present. Because the Bible promises us that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is available to us right now. You don't have to wait till after you die. In order to share this with you today, I want to share with you what is my favorite chapter of the Bible. It's Romans chapter 8. And in it, Paul says this. I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not out of its own will, but out of the will of the one who subjected it, in hopes that it might be set free from its bondage to decay and will attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that The whole creation has been groaning in labor until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly while we wait for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if you hope for what you do not see, wait for it with patience. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we ought to. But that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows the mind of the spirit for the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things, all things work together for the good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, will he not also give him us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's in a position to condemn? It was Christ Jesus who died. Who, yes, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of the Father for us. So what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or hardship 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nothing in the past, nothing in the present, nor anything to come, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. What is that glory? He takes us on an incredible journey up the mountain to say it was Christ Jesus who died, Christ Jesus who was raised, Christ Jesus who is now seated or enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And oh, with that eternal glory, that heavenly perspective... It puts everything in its place. I think because of Easter, because of Jesus being raised from the dead, Paul says three, four things that can happen right now. And the first one is that you can wait with hope. You can wait with hope. It was 25 years ago this month that a man drove up a van to the outside of a federal building outside of, in downtown of Oklahoma City, and decimated and destroyed a federal building with a terrific blast. It was one of the most tragic days of that decade in American's history. This was the Oklahoma City bombing. And I remember about 10 years after that occasion, getting into the van, going on our first road trip with our two young girls, and we went up to Oklahoma City in order to go preach for a friend who was being kind of installed at a new church. And while we were there, we took the time to take our kids by the hand and to walk through the incredible memorial of that horrible act. The first thing that you will notice when you go there, particularly at nighttime, is that you literally walk through a doorway of time. You walk through a moment of when this happened. And then when you get to the other side of that doorway, on the other side, there are all of these chairs for the 168 victims who died in that blast. 850 more were injured. But the most haunting thing about that memorial are not the full-size chairs, but there are little chairs symbolizing the children who died in that terrorist attack. But the most amazing thing about the memorial is not a human creation, but comes to us from nature itself. You see, there was a tree that was right outside that building. People would try to get to work early in order to be able to park underneath this huge 100-year-old elm tree that was right outside that building. People would want to park in the shade of the hot Oklahoma City summer heat. And when that blast happened, there was metal, there was glass, there was fire, it was charred, it was cut down, it was destroyed. And then they started working on the clearing of the site. 
and months and months later, somebody noticed something. That that tree that was presumed gone, all of a sudden was sprouting with new life. This is a picture of what the tree looks like today. And there's an inscription at the bottom of this tree. It says this, the spirit of this city and this nation will not be defeated. Our deeply rooted faith sustains us. Yes, it was cut down, but it was not destroyed. And even though it was charred and even though it had glass and metal in it, that tree was able to push through. And the most amazing thing to me of all about this memorial is that this elm tree, the seeds of that elm tree, have actually been planted in thousands upon thousands of homes and parks all across this great nation as a reminder of our deeply rooted faith. It seemed invisible at first. You wouldn't think in a moment like that that there would be any signs of life. But they were there. The Apostle Paul says, For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what have seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, as Christians, we get to grieve what's going on right now, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so what you need to know is that you have a choice. If you want to put your roots down deep into the promises of God's resurrection, what you will discover is that there's a difference between patience and panic. And the only thing that enables you to be on the patient side instead of the panic side, and you're waiting right now, is that firm and certain hope, that anchor for the soul. And so the first thing I believe that the Apostle Paul would tell us that the resurrection and Easter does right now, that because of Easter, we can wait with hope. But the second thing is, is that we can pray from our weakness. We can pray from our weakness. I want to tell you the true story of a man by the name of Jim. Jim pulled his car over on the side of the road one day because there was a car in front that needed some assistance. There was a young woman who needed help in order to change her tire, and Jim knew how to do that kind of thing, and so he offered to help. His young daughter and his wife were in the car, and they were watching, and they were waiting. And while Jim was working on that car, unfortunately, there was an accident. There was swerving, and Jim got pinned underneath that car. His wife immediately ran out of her car and ran towards the automobile where her husband was pinned and she screamed a prayer to the heavens in Jesus' name and with her little short five-foot frame, she lifted that car up enough that he could be pulled to safety. Discovered after the fact that she had cracked two vertebra in the process of lifting up that car. And her husband Jim went to the hospital he was being prepped for surgery, and the doctors also prepared the family for what he thought was going to be inevitable, that he wasn't going to make it, and that even if he did make it, he would never be the same. And so 
as they were wheeling Jim in to pray, to, to go to the to surgery, they all began to pray. And not just in that hospital, the congregation that was behind him, they prayed in that very moment. And all of a sudden, as he is being prepped for surgery, Jim sat up and began to sing a hymn. And everybody stopped and they put down their scalpels and their masks And they began to sing along. Jim's color came back in that moment. And the doctor said they had no explanation for how he was healed. It's the kind of story that you feel like you would read in a magazine and you would distrust the source. But the man that I'm referring to was one of my seminary professors. A man by the name of Jim Loder. And his wife was a member of my congregation in Southern California for eight years, and every bit of that story is true. But it's not the reason I tell you the story. The reason I tell you the story is not that miracle, but the miracle of what happened after for Jim. Jim was the most stoic, the most distant, the most academic and intellectual presence in his department at Princeton Theological Seminary. But after that accident and the cure and the miracle... He became known as the weeping professor. If you were in his class, sometimes you would keep a little tally of how many times he would cry during his lectures. But the one thing you didn't want to miss were his prayers. Every single one of his prayers dripping with gratitude and the very grace of God. What are your prayers like? Are they dry? Are they informed? Are they academic? Are they educated? Are they stilted? If your prayer life is not what you think it ought to be, here's my guess. My guess is that you are still trying to pray out of your strength instead of out of your weakness. The scriptures say that my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. So I just want to pause right now, quietly in your own heart, for you to bring what you know. I don't know what your weakness is, but you know. And to bring that vulnerability before God. Because we believe because of the resurrection, you can bring your brokenness, even your death, And God can raise it up. And you don't have to wait till after you die to do that. You can put down your degrees. You can put down all of your accomplishments. And you can say, in this moment, God, I need you. And in that vulnerability, God will be with you. And so first, you can wait with hope, pray with weakness, and thirdly, You can work together for good. You can work together for good. You know, one of the differences between what we're going through right now and other significant moments in American history, things like 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, is our inability to pull together in ways that we're used to being able to do when we go through a crisis. When there's a storm that hits the coast, we are able to kind of rally together, even to be there. And it's just not the kind of thing that we can do right now. And yet, in spite of that, 
There's incredible solidarity in people finding creative ways to work together. My father has never sent me a video through the internet in his life. And this week he sent me a video and I want to show it to you. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. These are simply not normal times. There are a thousand new diagnoses in a single day. That's what we're bracing for. I took an oath to save lives. on the line. We're going to do everything we can to save your life. And so we need your help to make that possible. And I rise up, I rise like the day. I rise up, I rise unafraid. I rise up, and I do it a thousand eight times again. We know that all things work together for good. And one of the things that we recognize is that that is one of the most misquoted portions of the Bible. When we quote Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good. We need to finish that sentence. We know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That is not a there, there pat on the back to say that, you know, everything's okay. Everything's fine. What you're really going through isn't that bad. That's not what that means at all. What it means is that all things can work together for the good if we recognize that we have a purpose, that we have a calling from God. 
that we as a community need to receive the resurrection power that comes from Jesus Christ and to mobilize that we are called to respond in a moment like this. That is what we are called to do. We are called to work together for the good. And so you can wait with hope. You can pray from your weakness. You can work together for good. And finally, you can love beyond limitations. Back in the 19th century, there was a young and promising pastor and poet by the name of George Matheson. And George Matheson had this bright career ahead of him. And he also had this stunningly beautiful fiance. All of a sudden, George one day discovered that he was having trouble seeing in certain circumstances and he went to a doctor and the doctor told him the terrible news that he, within a few short years, would completely lose his sight. 